Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Chris Yeah. Chris Yeh is the co-author of Blitzscaling, which, just as you're listening to this, is being published. Co-author with Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn. And it's subtitled, The Lightning Fast Path to Building Massively Valuable Companies. Yes, so if you ever want to own a company as big as a Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, and all these big tech mega giants, is Blitzscaling cool. is your absolute Bible on the way to get there. What it is, it's all about prioritizing speed over efficiency in the face of uncertainty. So that's what we discussed with Chris throughout the book. And he talks about the different ways in which you scale your company massively fast. Blitz. Blitz style. Absolutely. Let's get stuck into it, Chrissy. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we define blitz scaling as the pursuit of rapid growth by prioritizing speed over efficiency in the face of uncertainty. Now, part of that is pretty uncontroversial. I think most companies are interested in rapid growth. It's the part where you say you're going to prioritize speed over efficiency in the face of uncertainty that flies in the face of conventional business logic. And so the question has to be, why would you ever do this kind of blitzscaling? And the answer is that the world really has changed. Thanks to the internet, people are connected from all over the world. We're doing this podcast right now from Silicon Valley to Melbourne. And that's an astonishing thing, right? It's happening because of the internet. And because the internet has connected us all together, more and more markets are winner-take-most or winner-take-all. And that's why blitz scaling has become so important. Because the secret to winning a winner-take-most or winner-take-all market is to be the first to scale. And blitz scaling is all about speed. So by blitzscaling, you're able to become the first to scale faster. You're going to win that race and beat the competition. And that gives you the opportunity to be the market leader for years or even decades to come. So let me give you an example of a company that has blitzscaled. One of the stories we tell in the book is actually the story of the early days of Google. Back in 2002, Google was a small startup. And they did a deal with AOL, which back then was one of the most powerful companies on the internet. And the deal was that Google would power AOL's search results and sell their little AdWords ads against those search results. And the deal consisted of Google giving AOL 85% of the money they generated from the sales and guaranteeing AOL $150 million a year. Now, that may not sound like much. No. But at the time, <laughs> it sounds like a bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it depends on the. You know, maybe to you and I, it sounds like a lot. It sounds like a lot. Now, to some of these big companies, that may not sound like much. But at the time, Google's revenue the year before was nineteen million dollars. So here they were cutting a deal, promising one hundred and fifty per year to AOL. And the other thing was that was a guarantee. So if they didn't make one hundred and fifty million a year then they would have to reach into their own pockets and pay the difference to AOL. And at that time, Google had less than $15 million in the bank. So I want you guys to think about, you know, you've been entrepreneurs, you've had boards of directors. If you went to a board of directors and said, have I got a deal that I want to do? Let me tell you about it. And then you explain this deal. How would they feel? <laughs> be, uh, I reckon they'd be a little nervous. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem to, to make a lot of sense. It seems really risky. It seems like you're betting the company. And most boards of directors would probably say, you know what? 
Let's take a moment to talk about this. And uh, by the way, uh, we got some guys in white lab coats. They want to just check on you for a second. Don't worry. Nothing to worry about. Incredible. But, but we know what happened, right? So Google didn't go bankrupt. They did this deal. And that very next year, Google's revenues had increased to about $300 million. Wow. And that's astonishing, right? Because if you think about it, this is just phenomenal growth. Mm. And the reason they did this deal, even though it was risky, even though it was inefficient, is because they knew that there was a winner-take-all or winner-take-most market uh, that they could win. And in this case, it's because their advertising model, AdWords, was a two-sided marketplace. So a two-sided marketplace has really strong network effects, and that means that whoever gets there first – and reach a scale is often going to be dominant, much like eBay is dominant in auctions. And Google is that dominant in online advertising, partially due to the incredible volume they got out of that AOL deal. So the AOL deal paid off in spades. It allowed Google to blitz scale and dramatically increase in size and ultimately set them on the path to being the global giant they are today. Hell yeah. Wow. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's go back to that moment when they chose to do that deal with AOL and you know, they went for speed over efficiency. Can we go back a step and, and define actually what efficiency is and you know compare that to speed and yeah, go from there? Absolutely. So I have a traditional business education. I went to Harvard Business School. I have an MBA. And I can tell you what we learned in Harvard Business School. What we learned in Harvard Business School is how to run the numbers, how to look at different scenarios, and how to plan. And if you think back, back to when I was in business school, and this was in the late 1990s, the most respected companies in the world were companies like General Electric, which were able to deliver consistent earnings increases. The value of the world was on stability and predictability. And blitzscaling is the opposite of all that. Efficiency is all about, hey, how do we get the most bang for our buck? How do we carefully tweak and optimize things in order to get the best result? An increase 10% a year, 15% a year. Blitzscaling is all about the big bets the home run swings. Here in America, we have the baseball playoffs going on. And a lot of times what determines which team wins the game is which team hits more home runs. And you don't get home runs by swinging weekly. You get home runs by swinging with big, powerful swings. This increases the chance that you strike out, but it also increases the chances that you hit the ball out of the park. Wow. I like that a lot. What about uh, the person who thinks they've got a small business? I'll make a big deal with with somebody to assume a, a you know a 15x revenue growth like like Google did what happens if it all goes wrong and they do strike out well that's the key if you strike out in that situation you might not get another chance and the reason why you would take on that risk is because when there's a winner take most or winner take all market the biggest risk isn't the risk you take the biggest risk is not being willing to take on enough risk because there's only one person who's going to end up in the winner's circle. And meanwhile, in the world that we live in today, every company has competitors. Most of them have very smart founders. Most of them have smart investors. And they're gunning for the same prize that you are. So you've got to be faster than the rest of them. It's not about, hey, I'm going to slowly develop this over time and this will allow me to comfortably grow into it. It's about I'm willing to take on more discomfort than everyone else and I'm going to be the one who's standing on the winner's circle. I like that a lot. And as you say, if there's only one winner and someone's swinging a lot harder and a lot bigger than you are, uh, as you say, it's probably riskier not to take that big swing. So what about 
a, a bit of criteria, I guess, as to who should and, and when should they be looking to take on one of these massive swings and go for blitz scaling? Absolutely. So this is one of the key elements of the book. Back during the dot-com boom, people talked about this principle of get big fast. And a lot of those companies did, did in fact, get big fast. And then they got bankrupt fast. And so get big fast was sort of discredited as a strategy. Now, people think, hey, isn't blitzscaling the same thing? And the answer is no, and that's why we have a book. We lay out the criteria that determine blitz scalability and allow you to say, okay, now is an opportunity when it's worth taking that risk. So in the book, we lay out four key growth factors and two key growth limiters. And based on those four growth factors and two growth limiters, you determine whether or not your company is blitz scalable. Then beyond that, you look at your overall environment, look at the competition and decide, okay, should we take on the additional risk now or not? Mm. Great. I'd love to, for you to get into those four four. Uh four times when it is right to blitz scale and might uh, dig a little bit deeper after that? So the first growth factor is, of course, market size. So if you're blitz scaling, you need to be blitz scaling into a big market because there's so much risk involved. It's just not worth it to try to take over a small market. The numbers just don't work out. What's important to remember about market size is not just the present day market, but it's the future market as well. One of the things that we talk about is that there was a professor at NYU named Oswath Damodaran. And what he did was he did an analysis of a new company called Uber. And he said, you know what? This company will never be worth more than $1 billion. And the reason is the global market for taxis is $100 billion, even if we assume that they get 10% of that market, which would be incredible. That's only $10 billion a year in fares. They're only taking a, a cut of that, maybe uh, 10 to 15% of that. So that's $1 to $1.5 billion a year in revenues. And therefore, that company could never be worth more than a billion dollars steady state. And that's pretty good logic. But can you guys tell me what was wrong with that logic? Uh, I've got a feeling that maybe they thought, okay, it's not just the markets for taxis. Uh, there's a potential for a bigger market in the future. And exactly. also, uh, and it might lead on to your next thing as well. You know, you've got the network effects. Once they got that $1 billion, it could be a positive feedback loop where it gets easier to get the second billion and so forth. Absolutely. And both of those are, in fact, the case, right? The regular taxi business both is limited and doesn't have those network effects. And the Uber, Lyft, ride-hailing business does, in fact, have those. It will be an interesting discussion, by the way, since ride-hailing has become very important as a, a business. There are now major players in various parts of the world. I don't think that Uber will become the one global dominant player. It seems to me like there's going to end up being an oligopoly as opposed to monopoly. Uh, but that is absolutely the case, right? So looking at the market as just taxis is totally wrong. It turns out that when your service is that easy to use, that convenient, that cheap, it dramatically expands. And I think that the average person who is a regular user of Uber or Lyft probably uses the service about 10 to 20 times as often as they use taxis in the past, maybe more. Mm. And we've also seen, I know in Oz, Australia, we've got Uber Eats as well. So now they've gone from not just taxis where they're delivering people, but they're also delivering food as the first step. And it, uh, I'm sure there's more uh, avenues for them to grow into different areas as well. Personally, I, I actually pointed to uh, an essay that a friend of mine wrote who basically did the analysis and said, assuming electric drivetrains, 
which are remarkably much more efficient. It will eventually be the case that the cost of providing transportation will be so low that it's probable that the Amazons or the Netflixes of the world will go ahead and give it away for free just so that you have more time to shop or watch. Mm-hmm. One of the things uh, that I'd like to get into also is, and this probably occurs on the smaller scale up to the very big scale, you know, with the big tech giants we're talking about at the moment, and it's this balance between getting it right versus getting it done. And it mm-hmm. seems this blitzscaling approach, when you're prioritizing speed over efficiency, we're moving in the direction of getting it right, sorry, getting it done and not taking in the pe- perfectionist approach. So exactly. does, this, does this impact on the actual quality of the product they're selling and how do you mitigate the risk of putting out a, a piece of shit product that no one really wants? That's an excellent question. That ties in very closely with the next growth factor, which is distribution. So the reason why we have this emphasis on getting it done as opposed to getting it perfect is because of the implicit value of distribution. Getting the product out into the marketplace is so important because in many cases, the best way you improve the product is by iteration and taking in real market feedback and by those network feedback loops that we talked about. So it is the case that if you look at history and you look at different things throughout business history, whether it's the the DVD versus HD DVD versus Blu-ray and so on and so forth, VHS versus Betamax, there are inferior products that ultimately win because they were the first to, first to scale. And that's because by being first to scale, they end up becoming better products. Famously, my co-author for this book, Reid Hoffman, has said that if you're not embarrassed by the product when you first launch it, you've probably launched too late. Now, that's not because it's good to launch bad products. It's because, in fact, launching early and getting market feedback is usually the fastest way to get to a good enough product because that real market feedback allows you to refine the product so much more quickly than if you hadn't launched. And I suppose the the opposite view, the perhaps the, the Harvard MBA view would be uh, do your market research and uh, have focus groups to, to test the ideas first before you actually put it in the real world. But the blitzscaling way is saying, no, get it actually the, the product into the hands of real people first. It's a much better way to test it. Absolutely. It's very similar to the shift that we've seen in the software development world from the waterfall method where you start off with a set of requirements and you gradually build it and then you launch this thing versus the agile method where you're constantly turning iterations and saying, hey, you know, how did that go? How did that go? How did that go? I like it a lot. So there was one was market size. Number two was distribution. Can you give us number three and four growth factors? Very good. Number three is gross margin. And that's important because, as I like to point out to people, consumers especially don't care what the gross margin of their supplier is. Nobody's ever said, you know what, I'm going to go to that fast food chain because they have a lower gross margin. That means they're putting more of the money into the ingredients. Like nobody has ever said that. And so if you're going to build a business, you might as well build in high gross margins so that you can generate the cash to fuel the growth and so that ultimately the company is much more valuable and it makes it worth taking those risks. The fourth factor, as I mentioned, I've referenced them in passing, are things like network effects that confer a long-term competitive advantage. And it's those network effects that often create the winner-take-most or winner-take-all dynamics. Nice. So we've, we've dug a bit into uh, growth factors in terms of business model innovation and a few of the more counterintuitive ways of 
uh, blitz scaling compared to, say, the traditional models. What other counterintuitive kind of paradigms do you present in, in the book? So one of the sections of the book focuses on the counterintuitive rules of blitz scaling. We've already touched on one of them, which is you've got to launch a product that you're embarrassed by. But there are a couple of other ones that are very important as well. And mo- basically, the reason we have these counterintuitive rules is for people who are blitz scaling to understand, listen, to manage this kind of insane growth, we've got to throw some of traditional business wisdom out the window and do the opposite. For those of you who are old enough to remember the television program Seinfeld, there was an episode where the character George does the opposite of his normal inclinations and is wildly successful. This is basically the story of blitz scaling. So... One of the ones that we talk about is ignore your customers. Now, this seems crazy, right? (laughs) Because typically we say, no, no, the customer is always right. Customer comes first. We're the most customer-centric company in the world. Customer, customer, customer. But there are times when, in fact, taking care of your customers, addressing their concerns is not the most important thing. And the example we use is from my co-author's life. So... When Reed was early in his career, he was one of the exec- first a board member and then an executive at PayPal. So PayPal, obviously, very well known today as the payments company. And it took them a while to actually get their formula right. And we can talk about some of those pivots along the way. But once they finally got PayPal right, the company started growing explosively. And in fact, it was growing not 5% a month, not 5% a week, but 5% a day. Cool. <laughs> That's unbelievable. And that was insane. Now – It was not a perfect product, and it turns out that when your product involves money moving back and forth, people get very upset if it doesn't do what they think it's supposed to do. And so people were like, oh my god, I got to fix this problem right away. I'm trying to PayPal someone money, and it didn't go through. All right, let me figure it out. Let me call someone up. And then they discover, they look at the website, there's no phone number. Like, okay. And they enter in a customer service email and they wait a couple of days. They're like, nobody's answered me. So what do these customers do? Well, some of the more enterprising ones got a Palo Alto phone book, looked up the number for the PayPal main office and began dialing extensions at random, trying to get a hold of something. <laughs> now, the growth at this point was so insane that as Reed describes it, every single phone in the office rang constantly. <laughs> And if you picked one up, a customer would start yelling at you. So that was the situation. And the question was, what should they do about it? Because they had two people doing customer service. They were falling further and further behind every day. And they said, okay, clearly there's some problems, issues with the product. we got to try to fix them. What are we going to do about the customers? And somebody said, hey, are we still growing 5% a day? Is transaction volume still increasing? Does it look like we're gaining traction? All right, let's ignore these customers. (laughs) Let's keep going. (laughs) Keep going. And that's exactly what they did. Now, after raising a much larger round of financing, they did go back and fix the problem. And they did it in a very classical blitzscaling way. So they actually struck a deal with the city of Omaha, Nebraska, here in the Midwest of the United States. They flew the company out there. They did team interviews and hired 100 customer service people in one week. And said, okay, attack that backlog. And a month later, half of those people had quit because they're like, it ain't worth it. 
So they hired another 100 people and put them in the call center. And today, <laughs> PayPal's operations center in Omaha employs about 5,000 people. Ah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's phenomenal. It is a pain in the ass, though, from a, from a consumer point of view for those totally. companies who have uh, <laughs> read Blitzscaling and you go to let them know, you know, your issues with the product and then you can't, <laughs> you, you can't figure it out and they just send you to the frequently asked questions page. <laughs> yeah, no, they, they know that they've got us right yeah. where they want us and that we're not going to stop using them. Uh, by the way, the, the, what I always do then is I then take to social media to bitterly complain and usually that gets someone's attention, but that's because I'm a little more well-known, so that helps. <laughs> that <is good. laughs> Fantastic. Um, another one or two of the counterintuitive rules or ideas I'd like that sort of seemingly fly in the face of regular business advice is embrace chaos and, and let fires burn. It sounds like yes. it sounds like mayhem. Absolutely. So embracing chaos and letting fires burn are very closely related. And what it basically means is in an environment where things are changing really rapidly, A, you can't get attached to any one particular plan because they're changing all the time. And two, you don't have the resources to fix every problem or even think about them. And you have to pick and choose which battles you're going to fight. So let's talk about embracing chaos. I mentioned PayPal earlier. One of the amazing things about PayPal is that during its first 12 months of existence, it went through four different business models. So PayPal started off as on-phone encryption. The idea is we're going to encrypt stuff on the cell phone and we'll figure out something to do with it. They're like, okay – well, that didn't quite work. That's not quite important enough. Okay, we're going to take Palm Pilots and we're going to allow the encryption to beam money back and forth on Palm Pilots. And in fact, that was the original thing PayPal launched with, which was, hey, you can beam money from one Palm Pilot to another. Now, obviously, none of us have Palm Pilots anymore. I think those things went extinct like 15 years ago. So that wasn't the final business model. And so they said, okay, maybe it's not Palm Pilots. Maybe instead it's people can email money back and forth. And that's when they started to get on the right track and when they finally really made it work is they said, ah, it's accepting payments that's really important. It's not so much people trying to PayPal each other to settle up a restaurant bill that matters. It's merchants accepting PayPal because it's easier to pay online. Okay, now let's run with that. And that only happens if you're willing to embrace the chaos. If you're like at the beginning of that and you're like, no, we are, we are totally focused on encryption on cell phones, <laughs> then how do you go through those multiple pivots to get to the point where you finally have the thing that works? Absolutely. You never would. That's still be no. trying to encrypt it and no one would have ever heard of them. And, you know, someday it would be valuable, but that's the problem with the startup world. You don't have to be wrong. What you're working on might very well be something that is enormously valuable. But if it's enormously valuable in seven years, you're not going to last that long. Mm. Hell yeah, that's, uh, that's unreal. So uh, in your book and what we've been talking about today, some of these huge mega tech companies around the world, a lot to just like move up to 50,000 feet at the moment. And do you think there's any more fertile ground for some other big tech mega giants coming in the future? And where do you think they're going to be? Like, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook, Google, they seem to have taken these spaces that no one can really compete with them. So where's the, the next kind of fertile ground? So this is one of those amazing things about the world, right? I think everyone often becomes very uh, short-sighted. They put their blinders on. They just focus on the present day. And I ask people, okay, I want you to think back to the late 1990s. And at that point in time, Microsoft was just completely dominant across everything, right? 
Microsoft dominated the desktop. Microsoft was the way the software that everyone used, Word, Excel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Nobody, they'd killed off their competitors. Lotus, one, two, three, gone. Apple, an afterthought, right? It seemed like Microsoft was unstoppable and they're going to dominate everything. So tell me, is Microsoft like the most dominant company in the world today? Not quite. <laughs> no, they're still good. They still have, by the way, dominance of the desktop. Mm-hmm. They still have dominance of office application software running on the desktop. But what happened is other markets became more important. First, the internet, then mobile, then the cloud. And as a result, it's not like Microsoft's powerful uh, franchises went away. They're still there. It's just other things became more important. So when people say, oh my God, how is anyone ever going to compete with Facebook? How is anyone ever going to compete with Amazon or Google? My answer to them is, you know what? I may not know. But I'm pretty sure new competition is going to emerge. Facebook has actually been really smart about co-opting that competition along the way. Facebook, for example, if it hadn't bought Instagram and Instagram had gone on to become what it is today, would view Instagram as its single biggest threat. Instead, Instagram is its crown jewel. So you can be smart and pick off some of the the up-and-comers like that, but I'd be willing to bet more are coming. Right? Human ingenuity is unlimited. And there are always going to be new and fascinating things that people do because there are new technologies coming out all the time and because people are finding new and innovative, in, new and innovative ways to combine those technologies and business models. Oh, fantastic. So there's exciting times ahead. I like it. And no doubt about it. Chris, as we sort of um, make our turn towards the end now, we're obviously a podcast. We read a, a book every week and speak to authors uh, what are some of your favorite books or books that you would most recommend? So uh, let me ask this question. Do you want these books to be current or can they be from any era? Any, uh, era. any Anything. All right. Perfect. So there are a couple of books that I just adore. They mostly tend to be older books, but I will share them anyways. So the first book I'll share is perhaps one of the oldest business books in the genre, which is the classic Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it's written in this old-timey way, and so it may seem a little strange and corny sometimes when you read it. But I really do feel like a lot of times founders are very strong on technology, very strong on business, and weaker on people skills. And How to Win Friends and Influence People, even though it was done before we had the psychology to really understand all these things, does an amazing job of sort of laying out how can you actually be somebody who – is able to work with other people of all different kinds and make them feel good about themselves. So I think that is a great pick for anyone who's never read it. It's one of the Stone Cold classics. Now, another book, which is much more obscure, but I often cite as one of the books I like the most, is a book by the author Poe Bronson. Now, Poe Bronson's a very famous author. He's written a number of great books. This is actually one of his more obscure books, and it's called Why Do I Love These People? And why do I love these people is a look at family and the different kinds of relationships that people have with their family members. And it is a great reminder of what are the things that really matter to us, you know, beyond things that can be measured with a balance sheet or an income statement. What are the ways that we relate to each other and what are ways that we could relate to each other more lovingly? So I really love that particular book as well. Awesome. I haven't read that one, so that sounds like an awesome book. Mm, 100%. All right, well, Chris, that was, that was absolutely phenomenal. If people want to find out more about yourself and where can they go and buy, buy this book? Excellent. So 
So in order to buy the book Blitzscaling, we recommend that everyone just go to blitzscaling.com and we provide links to a number of different online retailers, including, of course, Amazon, which is featured many times in the book. But you can certainly just Google Blitzscaling. It is a term that we made up just for this book. So if you Google Blitzscaling, you're almost certainly going to find something that relates to what we're talking about. If you enjoyed this episode and you're interested in business, whether that's starting a new business or growing your current business, we've created an email series which highlights our best business episodes. So out of the hundreds of books we've read, we've handpicked the top juggernauts and are going to be the most effective for you in reaching your business goals. So if you want to check it out, head to whatyouwillearn.com slash email.